Welcome to the podcast, People More Interesting Than Me. I'm your host, Michael Strumsky. This week, I talked to Detective Chris Loudon. Chris has been a police detective for over 25 years specializing in cold cases. He was recently the lead investigator in Paramount Plus's original series, The Box, where he exposes the truth behind one of America's worst but little-known serial killers. Enjoy. Okay, today I have with me is Chris Loudon. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Glad to be here. So you have over 30 years of detective experience. Is that correct? I have over 25 to be technically accurate. The other big thing that you have on there is uh, in Paramount Plus, The Box, you were the lead detective on a, a cold case that they kind of did a documentary on uh, recently, correct? That's correct. And before we talk about that, I I kind of actually want to talk about your process. So you've done a lot of cold cases. and Well, three, which is a lot by cold case standards. What does the process look like to you when you first start a cold case? compared to, I, I don't, what do you call a non-cold case? Cold cases can be something as, as recently as a year ago. They don't have to be back from the 70s. In fact, I think they just solved the cold case uh, with two girls that were murdered in uh, Indiana, in Delphi, Indiana. They just solved it, like, I think last Friday, and that was only from 2017, so mm-hmm. five years ago. But um, But mine were all much, much older. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way you the way you start process is different on every case because I don't want to I don't want to go into too much detail if it's not something you're looking for. Um, my first cold case was a home invasion and rape of an elderly woman if, from the early '90s. It was the first thing that was put on my desk when I came up into detectives, and um, the detective that was up there had been given it and he never worked on it. I don't think. He, he had much interest in it. So he throws it on my desk and goes, hey, maybe you can do something with this if you have time. So I started looking into it. I was able to locate who we thought was our suspect. And he was about to be deported into back into Mexico because he came into the United States illegally uh, in Texas. So I was able to locate him, put a hold on him. And after about two months of wrangling with the U.S. attorney, I got permission to extradite him back to, um, to Illinois, where we brought him um, in for interviews. Uh, we, uh, it was a long process. Uh, we brought him to trial. We charged him with home invasion and multiple counts of uh, sexual assault. Uh, he was found guilty and sentenced to 100 years in prison, which is where he is sitting now. He appealed the case recently, but he lost. So he's... Um, He's in jail for the rest of his life. After that case, I went to look. You know, I was feeling pretty confident. So I said, well, hey, let's see what else we have. So there was another case where a woman, an elderly woman, somebody broke into her apartment for a burglary, and she ended up dead at the end of it. We didn't really have a suspect yet, but when we said, hey, let's review this case, my boss, who was my detective sergeant, he and I started going through the old reports, and we started developing information that we thought would lead us to another suspect, which is how you do. That's the one uniform thing with all cases. You look at, um, you try to figure out who's involved, who the victim is, who the possible suspects are, anyone who might have information. Then you try to figure out if they're still alive and if they are, how you get a hold of them. So those are the big things that you start with on every case. So on the second case, um, we 
developed some people that we thought were um, possible suspects. Three people, a girl that used to live on the same floor with the lady, and then her boyfriend and a friend of his. Um, long story short, we brought, we, they lived all across the country, so we formed up three different teams of interviewers that went to each person's house. And on the, at the same moment, we were coordinating on cell phone. We went and interviewed each one of them so they couldn't tell the other that, you know, the cops were on to them. And this is from the early 90s as well. And so we talked to them. We determined that there was one person in Peoria that we felt was the actual suspect, uh, which is the friend of the boyfriend. So we transported him back to Illinois. We interviewed him at great length. Um giving him breaks, you know, every, you know, hour or so, uh, bought him food. I even washed his clothes for him, which was really <laughs> gross because I was a scumbag. I mean, his clothes were disgusting and I washed them and gave him an old uniform of mine. So he had fresh clothing, but anyway, we, uh, we got him to find, he finally confessed to murdering or explained exactly how he did it. Um, but during the course of the trial, we got a first degree murder charge on him. Uh, but during the course of the trial, some judge who, um, I don't know what, what your podcast is rated, but I can't use the words I would probably use technically for this guy. But this judge, who should have retired about 20 years earlier than he did, uh, threw out our, our confession for a really ridiculous reason. It's voluntary manslaughter. He pled guilty and he was sentenced to four years in prison for murdering an old lady and explained to me exactly how he did it. He, he got out two years later because it, you only served half your sentence, and then he sued me. So after he sued me, we only had one case left, and it was the one that in our department everyone considered unsolvable, and that's the one that they did the, um, the documentary on, the three-part documentary. 30 years had passed, at least, uh, and all these relationships, opinions, knowledge, and all that consideration for like witnesses and alibis and stuff – do you find this means you often uh, get information when you re more information when you reinvestigate the case many years later? Maybe people opinions have changed, or maybe they don't care anymore. Yeah, I mean it, that's definitely a possibility, and it was definitely the way it was in our second cold case. In our third cold case, her uh, died in that case. Her name was Pam Maurer. She was a sixteen-year-old girl who left a friend's house on January 12th of 76 and said she was going to go get a pop and she never returned. They found her body the next day. Um, there was never a, an, a um, suspect developed in that case in all the times they reopened the case. But in the second cold case, yeah, a lot of opinions sometimes say, plus we were always hoping when we opened the third case, the Maurer case, that Maybe people were afraid to say something back then. Maybe they feared the suspect or something. And now, after time, maybe they're not so afraid to tell us what they know. Other problems when you're doing a case is people kind of forget the details. You know, this was 1976. We reopened the case in 2019. So that's, what, 24 and 19. So 43 years had passed. Um when we developed our list of suspects, we had a list of about 10 suspects. And the problem was when we identified them all and started, they were all dead. Every single one of them was dead, which, of course, changes how you're going to go do your investigation if everybody who might have been involved in it is dead. So then you start talking to survivors of their death. Maybe they talked to somebody, they did something. But so 
Yeah, but things change a lot. Uh, answering your initial question is, yeah, people can always have a change of heart. They can have a change of recollection. Um, and, and again, just time can do good things, but it also can do bad. They can forget. It might make things hazy. They might misremember. Um, in my first case with the home invasion rape, when I went and re-interviewed the lady when I thought I found the guy, her details of the um, crime were very close to the original report, but there were some details that were kind of substantially different, which made it harder for us to try the case because the defense attorneys will always just jump on that going, well, now she says this when she said this last time. And so um, th that change of um, recollection can be good, but sometimes it can be really make things difficult. So when you're in like, for example, you said uh, when you were doing those interviews, you did them all at the same time. So no one would talk to one another. But when you're imbuing like witnesses or family members in a case, how often do you think you rely on nonverbal behavior and your perception uh, when you're asking them like the difficult questions or bringing up evidence, uh, whether they're, they're just telling you the truth or not? A hundred percent of the time. <laughs> um <laughs> One of the things is good interviewers. I'm I'm not good at a lot of things, but what my uh, my bosses have always said is I'm good at interviewing people. And one of the things that is underrated and a lot most interviewers don't do enough of is you use silence because people are uncomfortable with it, um, and also be patient because when we interviewed the second guy. He went from being, oh, I don't know what you're even talking about. I was never there to eventually telling us everything. But part of the um, what we do is we'll start talking to somebody. If I was interviewing you about something I think you did, I might talk to you for two, three hours and never mention anything about the crime or anything. I'll talk to you about what you do for a living, what your favorite movie is, what you like to drink when you go to a bar, you know. How's your love life? I'll ask you a lot of different things. And one of the things in that second case, we interviewed the, the suspect. We'll just call him Tom. Um, we were talking to him and he was being, he was able to tell us how much money he made the year that this woman was murdered. He could tell us how much he made an hour. So then later on, when we started pressing him, when and he says, well, I don't remember. This is a long time ago. I go, well, you remembered exactly how much money to the penny you made back then, but you can't remember a ninety, you know, an eighty-nine-year-old dead lady in an apartment. And so it makes it harder for them to be able to stay tight on those lies. The other thing we do is we always give them an out, like an explanation that makes it so it's easier for them to justify why they did what they did. Human nature, but you don't want people judging you. So I've interviewed people who have sexually assaulted children. And I'm telling them, well, I totally understand. I mean, he was touching your leg. I could see why you would think that was a, you know, it's a seven-year-old little boy you just raped. And so there's things like that you can do. And then you can also just ask him a question and just sit and watch him. And body language is very important. Sometimes they cross their legs or you can see me, you cross your arms or you start fidgeting. There's all sorts of things that can tell you that there's something that's making them uncomfortable. And if you'd spent two hours setting things up by talking to them and seeing how they react to the nice, easy questions, or even the somewhat, you know, getting difficult questions, and then all of a sudden there's a substantial change in posture or the way they talk or verbalized pauses where they go, uh, or, well, let me be honest with you, which is a verbalized pause. They're just giving them time in their mind to think of what they're going to say. 
So all those things are tools you can use later on than when you start pressing them a little harder. What would you say some of the advantage of working cold case are over the original investigator? Uh, nothing. There's no advantage. It's only satisfaction if you actually succeed. Um, and you know what? There is one good thing, and it's the thing that fueled me, especially with the Maurer case, is th this: the advantage is you can get a hold of the victim's family and let them know that the cops hadn't forgotten it which is to a person, everyone I've ever talked to involved in cold cases, they say, oh, I thought the cops forgot all about me. And it's like, no, we never forget. We never stop looking. We never stop working. And it gives them a little faith in the uh, in, in the system because there really isn't a lot of reason to have a lot of faith in the system. But um, as far as any other advantages, tangible advantages, there are none. Everybody's older. They don't remember as well. Um, the people who are um, who weren't going to talk before are probably even more cemented in not wanting to talk. Evidence degrades. Um, well, you know, you're, I'm wrong. There is one advantage. Technology gets better. And that is the thing that helped us solve the Mauer case. So that's the advantage is over time, something may come up that will help you solve a crime that couldn't have been solved. In 1976, when Pam was murdered, kidnapped, raped, and murdered, uh, the technology did not exist for them to solve that crime, even though they actually, if you ever get a chance to watch that documentary, they actually had the murderer the day after he killed her. And they talked to him, but never wrote a report on it and never followed up on it. So they might have been able to get him. But for our purposes, our investigation was assisted greatly by new technology that didn't exist back then. So that would be the one advantage. Yeah, and I saw that you guys cracked that case because you used a, uh, I don't remember the name of the DNA, uh, the pool that you guys compared it to. DNA in this case, I mean, do you think more police and more specifically cold cases should compare it to like 21andMe, Ancestry.com? What's your opinion on that? Well, that's genetic genealogy, and that's actually what we use to solve our case. Um, that, and that's an interesting topic right now. Um, because in the United States, there's a push to try and not allow law enforcement to use genetic genealogy. Um, when we did it back in 2019, when we sent our DNA from Pam's clothing to uh, Parabon Labs, which were the rock stars on this, um, they also solved the Golden State murders. Um, they'd be really good ones to talk to for a podcast. Um, but when we sent it to them, they took our DNA profile and compared it to other profiles that were submitted for 23andMe, Ancestry.com, and they compared it to people that are just common everyday people. Otherwise, the only thing you can compare it to is CODIS, which is a kind of a computerized database for bad guys. And since our crime happened in 76, unless he was arrested somewhere after CODIS was created, his profile wouldn't be in CODIS. So there's nothing to compare his DNA to. So the only thing we had a chance to do was compare genetic genealogy. And as it turned out, some girl in one of the Dakotas, some 24-year-old girl, our DNA matched in a real, like, distant, familial way with, with this girl. And so then we started going through her family tree. And if she wouldn't have gone to check out what nationality she was through 23andMe or whatever, you know, system she used, we would never have solved this. But, it, yeah, they should use it, definitely. And if we used every 
DNA profile in all those public databases, it would give us a much bigger pond to look for, you know, to find our fish. But there's a, there's a push after our case was done that people are thinking it's an um, infringement on people's uh, personal information. I don't quite understand it because if my great great grandfather did something that was really bad, and my DNA helped prove that he he and he we gave that family closure from you know 1962, better. I have I don't understand why anybody would have a problem with it. They're not pro proving you did something bad. It's some long distant relative, but that's the that's the problem we're facing now because there is a, a strong pushback against that. Okay. Yeah. I. I was trying to think what the negative would be, but I, I haven't done enough research on what the, the push is for the other side. It, I can't think of it at the top of my head. I can't uh, either. And I've been thinking about it for two years, three years. I can't think of a reason why anybody would care unless they're guilty of something. Yeah, that's true. So I guess when you analyzed your, your cold cases, when you come into it, are you like how much do you believe of what's actually already been done? Like, is everyone a possible suspect that's been interviewed? Oh, yes. And, and, and people that they did an interview. Um, here's the thing is you can't, I, I just did a presentation on this for a homicide con, uh, investigators conference just a couple weeks ago. And I was trying to explain them. And I gave them examples of how in the Maurer case, Things that were in the case file from the original investigation and the subsequent investigations, there was stuff that was just plain wrong. People that they had names that were possibly the right names, but the wrong date of birth. It was the wrong person they're looking at. So if your name is Jim Smith, they had a Jim Smith in there, but it was the wrong guy. He was like, you know, seven years younger than the guy they should have been looking at. So, yeah. and, and just because... We had a problem with, and again, this is getting into a lot of detail you might not care about, but Pam, Pam's autopsy report said that she had had sex prior to death, but it wasn't forced. And that was the first thing where I put a post-it note next to it saying, a lot of big question marks. And so I contacted our current um, coroner and I asked her, I said, can you do me a favor? Can you look at this, this autopsy report and tell me what you would find if this was sexual activity without it being forced? And she looked at it and she says, no, there's no way I would have found that. She goes, they're saying because there was no injury to her, you know, genital area that it wasn't forced. But, but we all know anyone who does a lot of criminal sexual assaults, like I have done, you know, a lot of them more than I even want to think about. A lot of the times victims freeze or, or they just completely go limp because they're so terrified they don't fight back. So there will be no injury unless they purposely try to injure them. So... Once we decided we thought that Pam had been raped and not just been sexually active, it went from us thinking, okay, Pam left to go get a pop. She had sexual intercourse with someone she wanted to have sex with. And then short time later, she was murdered by somebody completely different. Mm -hmm. Now, if we think she was raped, it changes. It. First of all, it gets rid of all females for, for our, our suspects, which cuts down our suspect list. These women can't commit murders. Um, and we did it to more with people who might have some kind of a sex crime background so we could look at that. And it turned out that that's how we figured out our, we were on the right track. Because our guy, Bruce Lindahl, had an extensive uh, history for crimes against women, both sexually and just violence. So it changed, it changed a lot. So everything. The, the, so that original autopsy report was just 
ended up being wrong, you know, as far as the, the sexual aspect of it. So we look at everything and we, we take everything at face value, but we're never surprised by if somebody, somebody they interviewed 20 times ends up being the bad guy, could be a, you know, could it be a family member? There was a suspect that could have been a family member in Pam's case. He had a very strange uncle who liked to watch porn with the girls naked while they were like 14 years old and give them booze. But nobody thought to interview him. So again, the original investigation, you keep scratching your head going, boy, you hear about this guy um, and you didn't think maybe I should interview him? I mean, somebody does that, you think they might have a you know, tendency to do something bad like rape and murder the girl. Yeah. So just bringing kind of what you just brought up, you deal with a lot of unspeakable crimes. Oh, yeah, on the that's daily. a long-winded way of explaining. Yes, uh, we, we read everything and we read it in just um, in its context, but we don't put too much weight or, or, you know, into anything. So what helps you separate your work and your home balance, basically, to keep it separate? <laughs> well, my answer would probably be substantially different than my wife's or my kids. Um, I have a hard time separating that. Um, with Pam's case, Pam um, Pam was born two weeks after I was. So I took a real personal interest because I kept thinking about all the things I was able to do. Fall in love, get my heart broken, go to college, go on vacations, get married with kids, you know, have a couple really cool careers, all these things that she never got a chance to do. and so. I had a hard time coming home and not thinking about it. I ha I brought reports home for months and just went over them. While my wife and I are sitting in front of the TV or eating dinner, I'd be flipping through pages. And my wife was a saint about it. because, And I still now. Um, so I, I did that. I would, On my way to work, because I had a 40-minute drive to work, I would, when, when I was getting frustrated because we were running out of suspects, I'd be like talking to Pam, going, Pam, point me in the right direction. I, I'm... I'm I need a sign from somewhere because we're going to fail you if we don't come up with something, you know, if I don't pull a rabbit out of the hat. And so once we solved it all, I still have bad dreams about it because during the course of our investigation, I was able to identify 12 women that our bad guy had raped, that had survived the rapes, but some of them he had raped repeatedly. And these women were just such amazingly courageous women because the worst moments of their lives and they, shared them with me and most of the time they were crying and, and you know I just felt really crappy for making them relive something that I think maybe they probably had put behind them far enough where it wasn't affecting their day-to-day -day. but I reopened a lot of wounds and um, I, I probably will always feel bad about that I lose a lot of sleep a lot of sleep so I, I, I you know you do the best you can you know trying to put it in the back of your mind but uh, it, it changes you you know, if you have any kind of soul, these kind of cases, um, they take their toll. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to go with my final question, which is a two-parter. What is something that your parents did that you want to pass on to your children? And what is something that you are trying to avoid with your parenting? Uh, my mom and dad were like pretty good parents. I mean, and the one thing that they did that I always thought was amazing is there was never, a, we had, I'm one of five kids, and we never had any doubt that our mom and dad loved us a lot. We I, we grew up on the south side of Chicago. Um, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, 
you know, our, we, we lived in, in a kind of a tough neighborhood and um, we always knew that they loved us. So even though we didn't have a lot of things, you know, we didn't wear nice clothes. We didn't go on nice vacations. You know, we never even went out to eat dinner. I think I might have eaten, gone out to a restaurant maybe four or five times growing up in my life. Um, so, but we knew that they loved us. And that's an incredible thing because there's a lot of parents, especially now, it seems like they give their kids stuff. They give them their credit cards and the best phone and this and that. But they don't spend time with them. So I learned from my parents to make sure that give them your time. So anything my kids did, I, I made sure that even if I was just getting home from work because I worked overnight, um, I would go do, I was there for them. So I gave them my time, even though I'm a cop, I don't make a lot of money. My wife's disabled, so she doesn't work. So we didn't have a lot of money. So like my parents, we learned how to make do with what we had. But my kids, I if you ask them, I don't think they'd ever say they were ever wanting for anything. We tried to make them feel we gave them everything we could. Now, my mom and dad is, I think because we had so little and they had five kids, I own two and I don't know how I paid for everything, but um, I think my mom and dad had a lot of stress over financial stuff and they drank a lot. And it's one of the reasons why my wife argues with me, oh, I'm going to have a glass of wine with dinner. How about having one, you know, have a glass of tequila with me? And I, I just can't do it. I just cannot drink at home because... My mom and dad, I'd lay in bed at night and I'd listen to them fight, you know, say the worst things. And they had a pretty good marriage. I mean, they, they stayed married until the day they died. But I heard them say horrible things to each other. And I never wanted my kids to ever hear that. You know, I, I mean, everybody fights, but the stuff they said was just really, really bad. So I would say, don't think at home and take your fights out in front of your kids because. It, it, it took a toll on me laying in bed and just listening to two people that I loved the most who allegedly loved themselves, each other the most. And yet they're saying stuff that you wouldn't say to a bad guy. Yeah. Does that answer your question? That was a great answer, sir. So that's the end. Thank you. Oh. Thank you very much. I had a very good time interviewing you. Well, thank you. I hope I answered your questions and not too off, you know, kind of too vague away because no. I do have a tendency of my mind goes like yours does. We're 20 different ways and sometimes it's hard to stay on track. No, it was great. And if, if anybody wants to, uh, the documentary is great. I, I saw it as well. It's on, uh, it's, it's still on Paramount Plus, right? The box. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And definitely check it out. It's You'll three see parts. Chris all over it. Oh, yes. <laughs> which is not a good thing i have a face for radio <laughs> uh, yeah and i have it for podcasts so it works out <laughs> and you know the thing too is uh we we did a uh a reddit thing that i never never even heard of reddit but we did a reddit thing a couple weeks ago and we got sixty thousand views which i found amazing but true crime is big in this country now yes it is you can tell that to all the uh the women out there. I feel like women are more, more affixed to it than men. I don't oh, know why. I had but... a doc. I had a doctor once. She said, "I saw you on because there was a TV show that did a, an episode on our cold case too." And just I saw you, and she was just like, just so like Intrigued. blown away by all that. My wife thought she was. It's like okay, I, yeah. I don't know why women like it more than men, but if I were single, I might might be able to parlay that into something, but. Yeah, I don't know. True crime stuff's cool. And, and the, I thought they did a good job on the box. 
Yeah, perfect. Thank you, sir. I really All right, appreciate Mike, it. Take care of yourself. You too. All right. All right. Good luck with the kids. Oh, thank you. If you like this week's episode of People More Interesting Than Me, please follow me on Apple Podcasts so you won't miss out on more episodes like these.